we'll get there. <laughs> testing, testing. We can go to this if we need to. Hello. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, welcome to Lion Lamb Church. Uh, this is the fifth and last message in our uh, series that the elders try to teach each fall. Uh, and this one is entitled, God Said What? Seriously? And you've heard some great messages on different topics of importance. Uh, and uh, Mark assigned these, and I got stuck with the one about biblical submission, which is pretty easy to talk about, actually. It's only when you get into the lack of submission that it becomes difficult. So uh, uh, let me just say this. This is not about the, the election, although I may say a few things about that, because it this issue may rise. Oh, I need to use this? Okay, so this is off. Okay, well, that's, that's good. All right, well, hopefully you can hear. Uh, and uh, so I would ask that you pray for me right now, if you would. Father in heaven, we give all praise to you, and we ask, Lord, that you would be with us today. Lord, help us to, to get insight, to tackle a very difficult topic, and to apply it in our lives in very difficult circumstances. Father, we give you all the praise and the glory and pray that you would open up hearts and ears and minds and that uh, we would understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an apparent dilemma that's faced Christians of all ages and now. And, and so we... Uh, usually are and certainly should be the most law-abiding citizens forming the very backbone of societal stability. Yet, you and I see our core convictions, our lifestyle, our beliefs that Scripture says leads to life are increasingly marginalized, criticized, and even attacked. And of this, we should not be surprised or discouraged. Jesus tells us in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, taking that scripture to heart, does that mean that you and I, as Christians in our culture, lie down and allow the cultural train to roll over all vestiges of our Christian heritage and its influence? Should Christians sit by and allow raw political power to regulate, emasculate, or perhaps even control the church? Uh, uh, you've, you've all heard of uh, people of different faith groups who oppose uh, fighting in war, okay? Should we be cultural pacifists? That's my question. So uh, consider that Christians have often been, not by themselves, but often been the backbone of some of the major societal changes uh, over time 
challenging the reigning status quo. Uh, slavery has been practiced throughout history, throughout the world. And with few exceptions, that remains true today. Half of the countries in, recognized in the United Nations still have legal slavery. And certainly in certain cultures that, uh, where slavery was the norm, uh, or servanthood they might have called it, slaves were considered part of the household. But where slavery was abused, it was always driven by the love of money. And such was the case in the 1800s when a, it became evident that slavery was a cruel practice and inconsistent with scripture. And this movement was headed by a guy named William Wilberforce who was a member of parliament. And his mentor was a guy by the name of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Thank you. Slight brain pause there. And uh, John had been a slave trader and had witnessed all this himself and participated in it. Uh, the greatest number of slaves that were taken from Africa went to Middle Eastern countries, mostly Muslim. Of those that came across the Atlantic, most of them went to South America and the Caribbean, about 3% came to the United States, or what was then the British colonies. The revulsion over slavery was picked up by certain groups like the Quakers and others, and uh, certain people like John Quincy Adams, who after being president came back into Congress to fight against it, and Harriet Tubman, who you've probably heard about. When Newton, what Newton and Wilberforce and Tubman and Quincy and the Quakers all had in common was one thing their faith in Christ. So the abolition of the slave trade was largely directed by Christian conviction and resistance, which made Britain and the United States some of the very first countries to outlaw it. In fact, it's hard to imagine that women and other minorities would gain equal status or restrictions, we'd have restrictions on child labor, without the backbone of Christians who took a stand. So without firm Christian opposition to the, to the destruction of God's image in the womb, one has to wonder if there would be anything standing in the way of that gruesome uh, practice. In the process of taking a stand, Christians have at times had to disobey certain laws or commands of civil authority on the basis of conviction. So the question I want to ask today to start us off is, can disobedience be a biblical response to authority? Okay. Uh, we're going to address today the question of submission to authority and civil disobedience, particularly in the issue of religious liberty. What happens when liberty or conscience is threatened? In other words, what should a Christian do when his government or another authority to which he is commanded to submit requires action or inaction and obedience to the command is contrary to the commands of God, essentially to commit sin of either commission or omission? Last week, uh, Chris Helt had a Sunday school uh, which dealt with many of the particulars of this issue. Uh, and I, if you were not here, I strongly recommend, I believe it's online, 
that you listen to that Sunday school message from uh, November the 1st, because it'll fill in a lot of the things. Today we're going to deal with basically general principles with a few examples. Um, it takes a, quite a bit of thought to figure this out in, as to whether and when we should engage in civil disobedience. Let me ask you if these two following statements are inconsistent. It is the will of God that we submit to every human institution. Got that? On the other hand, we should obey God rather than men. Are those two statements inconsistent? Well, they happen to have been uttered by the very same person, Peter. So I suspect there's a reconciliation somewhere. Let's start with the basics. We covered this, I think, a month ago. The simple statement by Jesus of give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's, Matthew 22. And last month, uh, we addressed the area of politics and said that this foundational statement was revolutionary. It, it established that the government is not God. And there's a difference that puts a divide between the two. We also discussed how when the government and the rulers become God, like Pharaoh and Caesar, there is no moral appeal beyond the government, and it ends in brutal tyranny. Finally, when the church and the state have been joined together, as was much of the practice in Europe and other places, other Muslim countries, the results are generally not good. This is what led our founders to separate the two in the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, no state church, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But the tension between submission to authority and liberty to worship extends throughout history. In the Old Covenant, we saw the Jews suffered enslavement and captivity as a distinct faith group in Egypt and in Babylon. The apostles in the early church determined to follow Jesus in life, willing to be martyred for their faith rather than to bow down to Caesar. Saints of the past and present are therefore required to make decisions to exercise free will in drawing that line between what is Caesar's and what is God's. Religious freedom in the United States is the foundation, has its foundation, the example of Christ himself and in his creation of all people in the image of God. Our founders proclaimed that the, this dignity of God's image is inherent in every human being. And they also found, even though they themselves were imperfect, they knew well the abuses when state and church were one, and therefore the final authority. And that's why they proclaimed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founders knew that we had to start with absolute and objective truths, which were self-evident, meaning not just that they're beyond dispute, but they're established by God for universal application. Not only are these rights endowed or given by a transcendent or above-man authority, but they cannot be alienated, taken away, stripped, by law, by rulers, 
or by courts of man. Another concept that's foundational to our country and our faith is that of free will, or as our founders put it, liberty. By that we mean not just that we can make decisions, but that, that we're not puppets or robots, but that no person should be compelled to embrace any faith, nor forbidden to worship in accordance with the conscience of his free will, being subject to the law of man when it is consistent with the higher law of God. So the, the, the authors of the Declaration of Independence start with the foundation, the nature of God. The God of the Bible uses love, reason, and his spirit to draw unbelievers by free will, not coercion. This is the great divide between Christianity and Islam. God desires true and willing obedience from within, not outward compliance born out of coercion and fear. Founders also saw the need for freedom of expression and placed it in the First Amendment right after the First Amendment uh, right to religious freedom, and that includes expression of faith. Freedom of conscience and expression are also the cornerstone of a free and open society. And without it, not only can we be told what to think and what to believe, but, the, but government has power that is unlimited and even to the point of deciding who lives and who does not. Uh, President Trump took quite a bit of heat for his slogan, Make America Great Again, and now, what is it, uh, Keep America Great or whatever. And he was, in, he was criticized, including by some Christians, who point out the sins of our country, past and present. And in a real sense, which nation composed of sinners could ever claim to be great? To a perfectly righteous God, no group of people or nation is great. Wasn't that the not-so-subtle message of the Tower of Babel? Now, I've never heard the president define what he meant by great, so I'm not going to try to define it, but at least chew on this. Have you ever thought what the world would be like without the nation of sinners called the United States of America? That we might all be speaking German or Russian or Chinese at this point and not enjoy the freedoms that we have. We should thank God at a minimum every single day that he has worked through this imperfect nation for, for good in many, many ways. I put on here I would say something about the election, okay? These are just comments of my own, you know, don't, take, don't apply this to anybody else, okay? Clearly there's no mandate. This, mandate. this is a very close election. And I want to say, because there's a lot of talk out there about, well, fraud and, and that sort of thing, and I would say this, I think they will probably find some. They may even find some criminal activity, and if they do, they should correct that. But you need to understand something about courts, is that you need evidence of widespread, significant, consequential fraud, deception, whatever it might be. And unless they can show that that fraud and deception or manipulation of the system would have changed, would have been different had they not done that, we have our president, okay? I don't know what they're going to find, 
But I would just say you might want to just accept that, that the fact there is, though, there, is there has been that, uh, that, that inappropriate action by some people doesn't mean the results are going to be overturned. Just accept it. Okay? I don't know what's going to happen, but just understand that's how it works. Our situation can change. And the way that it looks right now is we may have many more opportunities to apply this issue of submission to authority. Uh, now, when we are criticized, marginalized, or even persecuted, we should not complain and whine. Why? Because Jesus tells us, great is your reward in heaven as long as we're being persecuted for righteousness sake. However, it is a bit ironic that those who champion the right to kill the unborn, the aged or disabled, to engage in immoral sexual practices and to have relationships recognized by law are very often the very same people who would trample on our freedom uh, to express our religious and moral commitments to the sanctity of God's image and to the importance of biblical marriage to our culture. Uh, thinking of recent events, there's an, a, a clash was within our culture was demonstrated during the confirmation hearings of Justice Amy Comey Barrett. Now, it's not news that they were that she was opposed by certain people simply because she was nominated by the president. Okay, and of course the big issue was her pro-life statements of the past, but that's not novel. Okay, anybody who has who has given any hint of being pro-life would have been challenged. What is unique is the attack on her for being a religious person, okay? Now, please understand me here. Christians unwittingly use the word religion in different ways, okay? It's hard to define in all contexts. A basic definition would be a belief in an ultimate authority. So. Question, what ruler, judge, official, Supreme Court justice does not believe in some ultimate authority? Whether it's himself as God, or the rule of man, or the rule of law, or the God of the Bible, or maybe some other deity. Everybody has a worldview. Therefore, everybody has a religion in using that definition. Objective truth and meanings of words are vital to our communication and understanding one another. When words or, or phrases become ambiguous, the results will cause division, which is part of Satan's plan. We talked this morning in the Sunday school over there about how just defining the word Christian makes all the difference in the world. And Lewis's point was that when Christian becomes somebody who acts the way that you like, the word is useless, because that's not the definition of a Christian. Uh, now, there are other confusing words and phrases that are currently causing division, because people are using them one way, they're being heard in another. Black Lives Matter. Systemic. Gender. Orientation privilege or separation of church and state. That's an old one that has been misinterpreted for a long, long time. Uh, Attorney General William Barr said, 
In American public discourse, perhaps no concept is more misunderstood than the nation of separation of church and state. Militant secularists have long seized on that slogan as a facile justification for attempting to drive religion from the public square and to exclude religious people from bringing a religious perspective to bear on conversations about the common good. I would only add to what Barr said is that it's just the, the, the religious views of certain people. That's what's at stake here. In Europe and uh, in Canada, uh, we have seen Christian clergy prosecuted for preaching biblical norms against the practice of sodomy. Uh, and new hate law cr uh, crimes or legislation in America raise the specter of that same thing happening here just for reading the Bible aloud. Now, understand, Christians should never condone nor use speech that is clearly hateful. We're to tell the truth, always in love. However, what does the term hate speech mean in public discourse? If it's simply something that you don't like to hear, then many of us will be criminals. Uh, even if our speech doesn't result in prosecution, the phrase hate speech can be thrown out at another who simply makes a valid point that is contrary to someone else's, and you will be marginalized. A disturbing side note to the confirmation hearings of uh, Amy Comey Barrett uh, was her use of the, word, the phrase sexual preference. A couple of senators rebuked her for using that because it implies that it's a choice, not something that's inborn. The very same day, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary people, changed the meaning of that phrase to include the word offensive. And when confronted about it, they admitted that they changed the definition on their online version because of what was said in the confirmation hearings. Essentially, if we can use terms that carry different meanings between the speaker and the listener, or if we can change the meaning of words on a whim, how do we even start to have a civil conversation on important topics? So please, if you get into a conversation, don't go too deep without defining your terms so that you're talking about the same thing. If the right to freedom of speech does not include the right of speaking things that others do not like, then what good is it? What right do we have? There's a subtle use of law to silence speech in the church, and that is the, actually through the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, it has effectively silenced much of the church, and we've all been sucked into this. If you ask a lawyer, what do you need to do to maintain your tax-exempt status, they will say, well, you can't endorse candidates, and you can't spend a significant amount of your budget on uh, political activity. Now, and, and generally that latter part is uh, not a problem for most people because I don't know of any churches that would spend any significant amount. The church is a distinct entity, and its purpose is to proclaim the truth of God. It's not a political action committee. The rub comes in practical application. What if a pastor feels compelled to disclose a clear and present danger that's uh, on an issue that's addressed in the word, and there's an election coming up? And he says, 
candidate X has a biblical worldview, candidate Y has an unbiblical worldview. Even if he doesn't endorse or, or say vote for this person, what's the effect? Has that pastor endangered their tax-exempt status? Now, from our founding, pastors have denounced or approved candidates in their messages based upon moral stands, so providing guidance for their flocks. And the churches have been officially exempt from taxation since 1894. But in 1954, the situation changed. And I won't go through the history, but Congress passed the present restrictions on tax-exempt organizations, including churches. And since then, the IRS has been increasingly vague on their guidance with this law, which limits the First Amendment rights of pastors speaking from the pulpit. They've launched investigations, which up to this point uh, has used up the time and resources of some churches and nonprofit groups. However, they have avoided going to court. Why? Well, here's how it works. A group, an interest group will send somebody into a church and they'll listen maybe around the time of an election and they'll hear something that they think violates the, 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 the code and they'll report it and they'll investigate, or they might, okay? Uh, even the threat of those people coming into churches has silenced pastors. So they avoid the issue of politics like the plague, which I don't think we've done, okay? All right. But after 65 years of strict interpretation by the IRS, there is no reported situation to date where a church has lost its tax-exempt status uh, or been directly punished for sermons delivered from the pulpit. There was actually one case years ago, you may remember a guy, uh, where it was not an endorsement, not just an endorsement, but a church collection for one candidate named Jesse Jackson. Nobody has lost their taxes and status based in church. Why? Well, the appearance is that the IRS may well suspect that the restriction on free speech and free exercise of religion would not pass muster in a high court. So, if the effect of the law being on the books and the threat is having the effect that they want, why put it in front of a court? The uh, Alliance Defending Freedom that I think Chris is involved with uh, has a project where they'll actually ask pastors to send in a recording of their testimony around elections and they'll send it to the IRS and beg them to, to sue, to take them to court so that maybe the issue could be resolved. But this is just one of the ways that speech is being uh, squelched in our churches today, and there's a lack of understanding. However, there's even a more subtle threat to our freedoms that was forecast a long time ago. A little history lesson here. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French political thinker who came to America, the young America in the 1800s, and wrote about the fledgling republic. And he said famously, America is great because America is good. Trump didn't think this up himself. All right. If America ever ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Now, Tocqueville did not see a perfect country. Clearly, there was slavery at the time, and obviously there was crime. 
But compared to the various monarchies and fiefdoms of Europe with which he was familiar, he saw a culture in which liberty could flourish under a constitution that allowed people to participate in the process of governments. It wasn't the law of the king. Constitution started with the words, we the people. Now, Tocqueville obviously used the word great in a relative sense because what he saw and described was so much better than any other government or nation at the time. But going on from there, he had amazing foresight and he gave a warning. Remember, if you remember last month when we, we addressed the issue of politics, we said that marriage and the family is at the heart and foundation of our society created by God. The family is not only the first, but the biblical, the natural, the biological, sociological reality that existed prior to the state. The state didn't create marriage. The family is encouraged and supported by what Tocqueville called intermediary institutions. Okay? These include civic and neighborhood groups, charitable organizations, schools, other voluntary organizations that deal with problems and dysfunction and sin. One of the main intermediary institutions is the church that he saw. And in America, the church could not be controlled by, nor could it control the state. And the state, the, the church was deemed essential to the well-functioning of our society. But today we see a decline in respect for biblical values in the media, academia, uh, case law, government, like the IRS in what is now called the deep state, resulting in restrictions of free exercise of religion. And this trend not only threatens the individual liberty guaranteed to every person, regardless of his or her faith, but also the common welfare and the culture of freedom on which our system of Republican government is founded. What's, what are we really talking about here? What's, what are the real examples? Well, you've got situations where there's restrictions on freedom conscious for doctors or nurses who are required by their employers to, per, to perform abortions. Speech codes on certain campuses requiring recognition of immoral or unnatural relationships and identities. Christian adoption agencies closed down for refusal to place with same-sex parents. We even had a call recently, if you, if you kept up with this, if you're in this culture, of, uh, to restrict the rights of, and influence of parents by banning home education. Interesting how things turned out. Uh, the effect of this trend is to undermine the viability of the intermediary institutions which have served as an essential buffer between an overwhelming government and people, resulting in what Tocqueville called soft depotism. Okay? Now, uh, I'm going to read here some quotes. Stick with me. Uh, a little bit long, but helpful, I think. Uh, uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg of the Acton Institute said, in democracy in America, which is what the, the, the main volume that Tocqueville wrote, he suggested that democracy was capable of breeding its own form of depotism, albeit one without the edges of harsh dictatorship with which Europeans were all too familiar. Tocqueville spoke of an quote, an immense protective power, uh, unquote, which took all responsibility for everyone's happiness just so long as this power remained in the, soul, the sole agent and judge of it. This power, Tocqueville wrote, would resemble parental authority 
but would try to keep people in perpetual childhood by relieving people from all the trouble of thinking and all the cares of living. Uh, such circumstances might arise, Tocqueville wrote, if democracy's progress was accompanied by demands for leveling of social conditions. The danger was that an obsession with equality and leveling social conditions was very compatible with increasingly centralized state power. So Tocqueville's vision of soft despotism is therefore one of arrangements that mutually corrupt citizens and the state. Citizens vote for those politicians who promise to use the state to give them what they want. The political class delivers as long as citizens do whatever it says is necessary to provide for everyone's desires. The softness in the deposition consists of people voluntarily surrendering their liberty and their tendency to look habitually to the state for their needs. And speaking directly from Democracy in America, Tocqueville's work, uh, he said the following about soft depotism, excuse me. After having successfully taken each member of the community in its powerful grasp and fashioned him at will, the supreme power then extends its arms over the whole community. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and the most energetic characters cannot penetrate to rise above the crowd. The will of man is not shattered, but it's softened, bent, guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act, but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but it prevents existence. Interesting. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, innervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist nor a rocket scientist, but it seems to me something sounds a little familiar here. Okay? I have uh, had the... Uh, privilege of, of trying to keep up with my continuing legal education credits, and I listen to some lawyers who are in the thick of it in Washington, D.C., and they see what's going on. And here's what's happening as we speak, and this is true of both parties in Congress. Congress people rely more and more on the experts who happen to be the people who work at government agencies. And because these rules and regs that they promulgate, they, the agencies make up these rules, they have the effect of law, but they're never enacted by a duly elected body. These are bureaucrats. Now, why would Congress abdicate its responsibility to legislate over to the administrative agencies? Well, because members of Congress are accountable for their votes, right? You find out your congressman or your senator voters are Wayne, you don't like, you can say something. However, if they just delay and let the administrative agency come up with a rule or a reg that happens to accomplish whatever needed to be accomplished, they can deflect the criticism to the agency. See those bad guys over there? Yeah, it's them, it's them, it wasn't us. So essentially, some honest congressmen are saying, we don't do anything here. And, and you gotta wonder, uh, other than the, all the fights and the investigations and all that, which we're gonna have more of, I'm sure, uh, if that's not true. Uh, 
when the president and his supporters have railed against the deep states, they're, the deep state, they're pri he's primarily talking about the intelligence community that was used against him, which is pretty clear. But the deep state is much deeper than that. It goes down to every single facet of our lives. Added to that, while I'm not sure it did well in the election or played well, the emphasis on socialism that has made such a strong comeback among some with promises of redistribution of wealth, of free health care, of food, of college, and all other kinds of free stuff in exchange for votes. Now, Tocqueville wrote almost 200 years ago, but I think we could honestly call him kind of a prophet of sort because he figured it out well in advance. Okay, let's get down to the meat and potatoes here, resolving the apparent conflict, conflict for Christians. You know, Satan's got all kinds of tools at his disposal, so Christians need to be clear about when to submit and when to follow God instead. The word makes it clear that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. Christians believe in law and in the rule of law. In general, we recognize the duty to comply with laws whether we happen to like them or not. The biblical purpose of rulers in law is to preserve order, execute justice, and serve the common good. So how is it then that one subject to the government yet may be obligated to disobey it, as we've implied here? That would appear to be a contradiction. The answer is that laws that are unjust, and especially laws that purport to compel citizens to do what is unjust, undermine the common good rather than serve it. So let's read through the, the relevant passage of Romans 13 here and try to gain some insight. Starting at the beginning, every, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a very important general principle. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and to those who resist, will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, it's important to define our terms here, and this involves a little bit of translation. The word in Romans 13, uh, translated in our version, subject to, some versions say submit, some actually may say obey, is upotasso. And this imperative is not literally obedience. Upotasso is, is the word used in 1 Peter 2 for wives submitting to husbands. And this is what Paul calls here, what he's calling for is what we would call subordination. Subordination is significantly, significantly different than obedience. Uh, the word obedience, hupakos, 
I'm, I'm going to butcher this, hupakei, which is submission to what is heard. In other words, like your mom said, do what I say. Or bending one's will and actions to the desires of another. That is what the word obedience means in Scripture. So you don't have to have a reason why to obey when you're commanded to. Upotasso, on the other hand, is a military term. It means to line up under, or as we would say, subordination. In the military, subordination is essential because it can mean the difference between life and death on the battlefield. So you are subject to punishment for disobeying a lawful order. However, the U.S. military understands that an order given by an officer might be unlawful. The Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 30, states that a serviceman has a duty to obey the lawful orders of his or her superior. This has been interpreted to also mean that when given an unlawful order, the service member has a duty to not obey. An obvious example that really happened was when somebody was ordered to assault that village, kill all the women and children. Okay? Now, in such a case, the unlawful nature of the order is a defense to a charge of, of insubordination. In fact, one who carries out a clearly unlawful order is subject to prosecution and cannot use as their defense, I was only following orders. Okay? And that defense has been attempted. It was used by the Nazis in the Nuremberg War Crimes Trial, and it was used by Lieutenant Calais, for so those of you who remember, who was the one who carried out the order to murder 500 Vietnamese villagers. The point here is that all commands, not all commands or laws, are legitimate. In fact, we have a duty to disobey certain commands and laws. As Augustine put it, an unjust law is no law at all. So for the Christian who refuses to violate his conscience through obedience of an unjust law, but still remains under the sovereignty of that government and accepts the penalties which it imposes, is being subordinate even though he or she is disobeying that government. In Acts 4, Peter and John were ordered to stop preaching. And how did they answer? You, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then the next chapter over, they go, after being released, they go right back out and start preaching again. And uh, they're brought back before the authorities who tell them to stop preaching, and their response is very simple. We must obey God rather than men. And through the centuries, Christianity has taught that civil disobedience is not only permitted, but sometimes required. Martin Luther King, in his letter uh, from the Birmingham jail, cited Augustine, and he said that just laws elevate and ennoble human beings because they are rooted in the moral law whose ultimate source is God himself. Unjust laws degrade human beings inasmuch as they can claim no authority beyond sheer human will, they lack any power to bind in conscience. And for his disobedience, King was willing to go to jail rather than comply with legal injustice. I put on your handout some examples of civil disobedience that you'll find in the Bible in different uh, places, so you can look at that and 
And of course, there are extra biblical, biblical uh, uh, accounts of, of examples of persecution resulting in civil disobedience. Uh, Christians who refused to bow to Caesar were fed to the lions in the Colosseum. Even just being a Christian was a violation of law in much of the civilized world until Constantine endorsed Christianity. Well, let's talk about some principles here of civil disobedience. We have to first recognize that our highest authority is God in Christ. Romans 13 tells us, uh, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, okay? We have to accept the fact God put in power President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden, if that happens to be the result. We have to accept that. Um, and we need to submit. We need to do what is good. We need to recognize that person in authority as a servant of God and pay taxes and give respect and honor. But we also have to recognize that government is capable of incalculable evil. Sub submission to governing authorities does not mean uncritical obedience. And laws that are contrary to God's revealed will, will are to be disobeyed. Now, how do we make this rather dicey decision in certain cases? Well, I put some things on, again, on your sheet there. You need to be sure that the law or the command of government is clearly in conflict with the higher command of God. And so you've got to know your Bible and read it so that you can be confident in your decisions. One must not be personally acting inconsistently with the conviction or the scriptural command uh, because God will not honor a hypocritical show. And it occurred to me this could come up in our not-too-distant future. What about a, unif or a universal mandate to get a vaccine? Think about it. Every reasonable alternative to disobedience should be first exhausted. If possible, a respectful appeal to the authorities should be utilized, always out of a spirit of love and respect. However, if it clearly contravenes scripture and your appeal is not honored, one must be ready to accept the consequences, whether it's the Colosseum or jail or just a fine. Scripture tells us there will be consequences. In the end times, Jesus warned his followers that there will be tension with the authorities. He instructed them in Mark 13, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, of course, the real difficulty lies here in discerning God's will in all areas, particularly those where the Bible does not directly address it. And this requires knowing and applying biblical principles rather than a specific command. And it's the duty of us as Christian, of Christ followers, to discern God's will in particular circumstances. Why? because we want to obey him first. So, can anybody think of something that might be relevant and current that we have an issue with right now in our culture, in our community? How about COVID? All right, 
I'm going to give you my take on this, and uh, you may disagree, that's fine. But I see this in terms of lion and lamb church being an issue of jurisdiction. We are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, we are to be subordinate, or pay our taxes, and give them honor. And unto God, what is God? We are to worship him. We are to be obedient and to serve him. And you might say, okay, Kent, well, what if, uh, you know, you leaders get hauled into court? What are you going to do? You're going to quote that? Well, yeah, I hope we will. But we also have some additional help. Remember the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress will make no law respecting the free exercise of religion. Another one is something you don't hear very often, but it's the Kansas Constitutional Bill of Rights. And Article 7 says a number of things about religion, which we would not disagree with, but it also says this, the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience shall never be infringed, nor shall any control of or interference with the rights of conscience be permitted. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of responses here. We get an edict from the health department or the governor, whatever. Close down, regardless of the circumstances. I guess a, a response I would have is, what is it about the word never that you don't understand? Okay? So we have some legal arguments here. We need to understand that it's not the government's job to protect the flock here. It is the leadership's job. It's the job of shepherd elders to protect the flock. In other words, it is within our jurisdiction to care for and protect people within the local body. And in that vein, we may take into account what government says about a particular issue, and we might adjust according to the goal of protecting the flock. So if we look back to last spring, uh, when we knew very little about COVID, and we gave more deference to government guidance back then, and we decided to stop meeting, and we went to live streams as a way to at least stay in touch. And at the time, it sounded, I mean, I heard this, if you touch a door handle that has been sanitized, you might die. Okay? Uh, well, once it became apparent that COVID was present, but not nearly as deadly as some had suggested, we had to then weigh whether it justified a violation of the command to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So we made a decision to bring those back who were comfortable coming back and to continue the live stream for those who were not. And we, tr we try to provide the best options to the best of our ability for those who feel vulnerable. Because we do not believe it's the government's jurisdiction to control our worship or our assembling together. We know that for some, maybe even some authorities out there, they may not agree with our, our stance. And so we have to be ready to accept the consequences of that if they arise. Now, at the same time, Please understand that while we consider our jurisdiction, our responsibility to protect and care for you, that does not mean we will always ignore the government and what others recommend. Okay? If the governor says something, we're not going to reflexively do the opposite. Okay? That would be resisting the authorities. Okay? We will take it into account. We also need to be aware that each of you has personal responsibility for your own health. 
And we have told you time and time again, if you're not comfortable being here for any reason or you want to wear a mask, you do it, okay? We, you have to take responsibility for yourselves as well. What we ask is that you please pray for us as leaders as we, so we can try to make wise decisions on the, in our carrying out the responsibility to protect the flock. The best course is not always clear, okay? You may think it is, but we have some lively discussions on this issue back in the spring, and we'll probably have some more in the future. So please pray for us. Uh, lift us up every single day we need it. On an individual level, please remember Paul's word in Romans 14, where he had people in the early church and they were arguing. He said, stop arguing about whether to eat meat or only vegetables or you know, the significance of certain days. He urged them to not be divided over such issues. In our context today, let's think about this in a couple of applications. A believer may wear a mask anywhere if he or she desires for health reasons or because a business requires it to come in and it is improper judgment to conclude that that person, that believer, maybe somebody in your church is compromising their convictions or giving up ground to a corrupt government. That's inappropriate judgment. Likewise, at, at least at this point, we can, one can look at the situation take in information and data available and their own experience and conclude that they're not going to wear a mask in certain circumstances and it is improper judgment to conclude that that person does not love their neighbor. So, as the worship team comes up, I want to turn now to the prophet Isaiah. And he told us that the Christian life involves purpose calling and sometimes non-optional commands. And impliedly, there, there may be commands that's, that conflict with Caesar's decrees. Um, as Chris told you in Sunday school last week, shepherds must protect the flock, but we must always keep the door open to the gospel. So we ask for your prayers. Please stand and let's read from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. God, we give you all praise and all glory. We need your wisdom. Please give it to us, Lord. And please be with those who are vulnerable right now. Please protect them. We pray for a healing of our land, not just in this plague, but between people, between races, between Christians.